Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the wonderful Dolly Chug, social psychologist, Stern Business School professor, and author of A More Just Future, Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. What I'm positing it is, is an ability to grapple with contradiction. So that's the paradox mindset that Wendy Smith, Marianne Lewis, and other scholars have shown that when we're able to sit with two conflicting things in our minds, for example, that if if we stick with the example in South Africa, it may be true that if I'm a student, that my parents and my grandparents participated in actively supported apartheid and that they were also wonderful parents and grandparents. Like those two things can be true. And being able to sit with that contradiction gives me the like emotional limberness to kind of, you know, push my way through the the emotional slog of this is awful. This is awful. And to sit with terrible things happened. That's the only way you can do it. Is it- so says Dolly Chug award-winning social psychologist at the NYU Stern School of Business, where she is an expert researcher in the psychology of people and goodness. Her first book is the wonderful The Person You Mean to Be, and she just released a second called A More Just Future, Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. Both books serve as inspiring yet practical guides for those of us who seek to be better. A More Just Future builds on Chug's first book, which equip readers with the tools to be goodish people who stand up for their values. In her latest, she offers a guide to reckoning with the whitewashed history of our country in order to build a better future. The seeds of today's inequalities were sown in the past, she tells us, and it will take an extra dose of resilience and grit to grapple with the truth of our history and to make the systemic changes needed to mend the fabric of our country. Moving from willful ignorance to willful awareness is not easy, leading to uncomfortable feelings of shame, guilt, disbelief, and resistance when we encounter revelations that run against what we have long been told. But it is possible to love your country with a broken heart, she says, 
imploring us to grapple with contradiction, employing the paradox mindset as we shift from the rigidness of either or to the nuance of both and. So to hear how we can all become gritty patriots, let's get to our conversation. I feel like when we last spoke, I was like, what's the next book? What's Mm -hmm. happening? So congratulations. I feel like your first book did just come out. But that's I mean, speedy, I think because you know? of the COVID factor, right? Like those right. years, right? It does feel Still like fast. yesterday. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is actually. Thank you. Yes, it is. And you're writing a book, you know. I am writing a book, and it's interesting because you have been in my mind, and you are in my bibliography because <gasps> my book is in some ways about the ways, well, in many ways, it's about the ways that women are conditioned to be good, mm-hmm. and why that you would call it self-threat or that threat to our ideas of our own goodness is so terrifying. And I would I would qualify, as I qualify in the book, you know, I'm a white, upper middle class, straight woman. Yeah. And I recognize this is definitely, uh, I don't know if it's true of, I can't say whether it's true of all women. This is, you know, mm-hmm. very much written from my perspective. Definitely, I would argue true for sort of that middle class, have you read Rachel Simmons' book, that classic, Odd Girl Out? No. It's about girlhood and aggression, and it's fascinating look at the way that aggression comes out for women, primarily in social forms. That's the acceptable version. Mm. Whispering, back-channeling, whereas physical aggression for boys is lauded. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she talks at the time even about how so much of the research is about white middle class girls. It's about that sort of that experience. So that's my experience as well. And that's what I'm it's the only it's the only perspective I know. But we that, cling to our goodness. I'm yes. sure we were our the target of <laughs> your books. Yes. This goodness that you this sticky goodness yeah. and I want to talk about it from a gendered perspective a fair amount because I don't see men grappling with this to the same extent but I'm very mm. curious for your perspective but I know that that's obviously it's the foundation of your first book a good enough person letting go of this perfection of goodness mm-hmm. or this idea that we can achieve moral perfection and then your follow-up is sort of the psycho- the psychology behind it, which I thought was so fascinating. So I want to talk about all of it. And I know that's Thank not you. a question. But do you think I'm it's in. gendered? You know, it's. I, I just wrote down that question as you said it. To So I don't, from an evidence standpoint, I don't know the answer. But certainly from an intuitive standpoint, that really resonates, right? That women, and particularly because I think the way we talk about goodness is tied to being communal, Right. Mm-hmm. It's something about being other oriented. And and so that's that's the, the sort of word association around goodness. And then when you look at women and men with their condition to do, as you said, there's there's sort of agency is for men and com- communalism is for women. And so then that communalism seems to cross right into what we mean when we say good person. So that that totally connects in a, yeah. in, a, in, a in a very strong way. Yeah. I mean, that's just from where I stand watching the world and watching the world, particularly during COVID and George Floyd and watching men, so many men be largely silent while women 
seem to engage in either ardent debate about their goodness or sort of get into this identity threat, feeling incredibly triggered, misunderstood, et cetera, or engaging with the work in meaningful ways. And I know that there are lots of people who engage with this work, so I'm not saying that that's gendered, Mm -hmm. but it from what I've observed, it feels like men are like, like it was all women. It's been all women in my mm. feed. Not not exclusively. I should yeah. be more careful with my language, but that's that's where I see it. And and we see it in so many assaults on our rights, right? Like men are largely silent about Roe v. Wade, et cetera. But it's interesting to me that men don't feel the need, nor are they pressured to defend their morality. Yeah, that's interesting. So I mean, a few thoughts are coming to mind with that. So I think it's clear that they're not rewarded for doing it. I'm not as clear that they don't feel the need to do it. I, I, yeah. I think, you know, they are punished many times for caring about others. And so I can see how because it aligns with what women are rewarded for, we express it. And because it doesn't align with what men are rewarded for, they may feel it but not express it or may channel mm-hmm. it in different ways. Well, you were also saying, I mean, I started drawing a little like diagram of just connecting a bunch of ideas that I had never really connected until you started like connecting the dots, which is we already connected at the beginning of the conversation, communalism, of women, communalism. And this good person idea seems to align. We also know that women are conditioned often around perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And that sets us up for a fixed mindset, a very brittle good person identity, where we do get triggered when it's threatened. Because if we're not good, there is only one alternative that we're bad because it's so brittle. It's a fixed mindset. It's not it's not dynamic and stretchy and growing and growthy. Or goodish, the way I've talked about it and written about it. And so that perfectionism seems to play into this dynamic that you're describing as well. So it does feel like it's a little bit of a perfect storm, isn't it? Like of expectations around women versus men, and then how that plays out in these times of crisis and transition. Yeah. And yeah. No, and that brittleness that you just mentioned, that feels so resonant, but it's also not this permanent state right like there's we recognize that there's no finish line there's no moment and so you you always talked about and this has lodged in my mind affirmation cookies right this desire Mm -hmm. this ongoing need (laughs) to be affirmed in our goodness we want the cookie we want that validation which of course is not the reason to do anything and we recognize that but it's the only way that it makes us I think feel safe is that what it is is it is there a psychological desire to feel like you're on steady ground, on the right side of history? Interesting. Well, I think we can say that we are psychologically fueled by the need to affirm identities we care about. So those affirmation cookies, it's, 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 it's just like we crave sugar and we're wired for that. We crave affirmation. And I actually don't even think we should feel bad about it. Like, that's that's how we're wired. You know, there's a study that showed that <laughs> for identities we care about, you know, we we value affirmation more than our favorite sex act or our favorite drink or time with a close friend. I mean, we really 
crave it and seek it and and when we don't have it we try to like find it and 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 heat seek our way towards it so yes i do think those affirmation cookies are are really central to this story that we but i don't know that it's we want to be on the right side of history as much as that we want to some of us want to be on the right side of history if that's the identity we care about then right. we will seek to affirm it but I'm not sure that everybody's worried about being on the right side of history is, I guess, where I landed. Yeah. What's the psychological ground like that puts this desire to have our identity affirmed above all other pleasures or wants? What What is that core thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of research on self-threat. That's when you feel your identity is threatened if, if you care about being on the right side of history and you do not think you're being seen that way or you don't feel like you're behaving that way, you will feel that kind of red zone defensiveness. And I would say my second book talks, expands the idea from thinking about the research on self-threat to the research on social identity threat. And that's where groups we belong to. So if I, I you know, identify as a an American, and I care deeply about my identity as American, as a proud, patriotic American, that identity, if I feel like it's being, you know, somebody's chipping away at it or doesn't believe it or, you know, is questioning it, I will feel that same kind of threat that I feel that self-threat, but now it's like part of this group I belong to. Or I think maybe if I'm more precise in describing it, if I feel my group is being criticized, like my ancestors are being criticized, my heritage is being criticized, I feel that same kind of threat. Right. And then it becomes obviously incredibly discordant when your identity as a patriotic American, and I loved your conversation about that. I very much relate to that. I love America. I'm very grateful to be American. But when it feels defaced or appropriated by like MAGA, right? And then mm-hmm. suddenly you're like, I can't. I can't love the flag or these things become mm-hmm. discordant in our minds about what does it even mean to be patriotic or yeah. nostalgic or grateful. It's big, right? It's a big It's really big and it's and that's, you know, that that's where I'm writing from is a place of that what you just described that turmoil around that of of feeling like Wait, is the only way to love my country to never question it or to not look at what has been and how it's affected the world I'm in now? And now, I mean, I mean, forget what other people think of me. Like, I'm sort of wrestling how to do that. Like, how to am I supposed to celebrate the 4th of July and Juneteenth? Am I not supposed to celebrate the 4th of July? Is it wrong to celebrate the 4th of July? Like those contradictions and those paradoxes are really bubbling up like in a very steamy way for me these days. No, I mean, I'm a Thanksgiving baby. Thanksgiving has always been my favorite holiday because there are no gifts and it's meal sharing and I love the food. And now obviously it's fraud or it's a more nuanced and complicated holiday than what we were taught as children. And it's hard to sort of both end these things, particularly because is it a psychological desire to be fixed or that that brittleness that you talk about? Or have we become increasingly less flexible, less mutable Mm. in our 
in the way we think about things? Well, I mean, there's, I think there's two things. Psychologically, there's something going on, and then societally, there's something going on. So psychologically, we are wired for consistency, right? Like, we want coherence. We want a coherent story about Thanksgiving. We want it to be unambiguous. We want it to, you know, have clear good guys and bad guys. There's work on system justification theory, or what I've sort of casually named good guys win mindset. We want the good guys to win. So we want Thanksgiving to represent, you know, that that the side we identify with was sort of virtuous and generous and appropriate and everything was good in the end. That's the psychological piece of it. And 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 that's where I think there's great research on paradox that can help us. Like that may be what we are wired towards, but there's lots of things that we can do that we're not wired to do. And I think one of them is how to embrace paradox. Yeah. Societally, we're obviously living in a polarized time and a divided time. And we have all these systems in place that make it tougher to have nuance like social media. And so I think those two things combined have put us in a bit of an awkward position right now with the polarization and the need that the psychological desire for, for consistent narratives creates basically distorted narratives. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids, mom want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too. In therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, P-T-T. I love your conversation about divisiveness, which you talk about in both books, both the way that that judgment, quote unquote, 
is used to shut down conversations or shut down people. You're being divisive. Um. Or that we see it as inherently negative, evil, bad. And yet, absent divisiveness, we would be living... In pre prehistory, we would well, we would be living with like brutal schemes. Like divisiveness is yeah. what generates change, right? Divisiveness, as you write, without the divisive times in our country's history, we would still be quote unquote united in slavery and segregation. Right. <laughs> divisiveness right. is not always bad. It's uh, yes. genesis of change. That's right. It is. And, you know, there's there's great work on what's called the hindsight bias. The hindsight bias is how whatever things are now, you know, just seems inevitable, right? Like whatever, I, after like debating for 20 minutes this morning over what to wear, whatever I ended up wearing sort of seems like there's, I can't imagine an alternative where I'd worn a dress instead of my little pink jeans that I'm wearing right now. But uh, more more seriously, the hindsight bias shows up where, let's say, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King led the March on Washington and many civil rights activists fought Jim Crow laws, et cetera, et cetera. So we look at the world we live in today in the United States, and we can't imagine segregated water fountains. We just think that's like a preposterous thing because we assume that in hindsight, of course, that will have changed, that that something will have changed that that existed. But the reality is it didn't have to change. And there were many attempts to change it that were not successful. And so it's only it only looks inevitable after it's happened. And I think how we look at divisive times is seen through that lens of the hindsight bias of like, when we're in a meeting at work, and somebody's you know, challenging how we're hiring and questioning whether this is really an inclusive method towards diversifying our workforce. And they're sort of getting persistent and frustrated because they're not getting buy-in from others. And we want to say, you know, I think you're being divisive the way you're approaching this. You know, we're doing our best here. And we've now labeled that person as divisive. What we've done is forget that that's exactly how change has always happened, Mm -hmm. is through people being quote-unquote divisive. And I have to keep reminding myself that because I'm kind of a smiley, people-pleasing person that sometimes gets a little like, ah, stop being so divisive. Like, you know, so I have to remind myself that of the factual base here, which is that divisiveness is critical to change. Sometimes it comes in the form of heat, making people uncomfortable, sort of pushing the envelope. Sometimes it comes in the form of slower change, light, more incremental but it is essential to us moving in directions that, that many of us care about. Not to take us on a tangent, but I, I loved when that difference. Can you just elaborate a little bit about what you mean by heat and light? Because yeah. that was such a light bulb moment for me. I uh, see what you did there. Yes. So I actually tried to find the source of the heat and light metaphor, and many have used it over the past 100 plus years, have not found the original source, but I think it's really powerful. So the idea is that when we're trying to initiate change, there's different ways to go about it. We have different tools of influence. And sometimes it's just temperamentally. Some of us are oriented towards ways that are more education-driven, awareness-building, bringing people along at whatever pace they're able to move. That's light-based change. Other people, maybe temperamentally, are more comfortable with pushing people, initiating some conflict, some discord, some divisiveness, challenging systems in a faster moving way. And those are heat-based systems. By definition, heat makes people uncomfortable. That is exactly what it is meant to do. 
I have a theory that heat is needed for changing systems and light is needed for changing minds. I don't have mm. data to prove that. But there is data that shows that movements in the past that have relied heavily on heat and not as much on light or the other way around have not seen as much progress as movements that have had both heat and light working in parallel. And so that's, that sort of aligns with my theory about systems and minds and, you know, and heat and light. I, again, have to keep reminding myself because I do tend to lean towards light. And I, people like me can sometimes hear people bringing the heat and do a little tone policing or like, I think, you know, you need to kind of read the room, you know, which is my favorite phrase as the parent of two teenagers. <laughs> read the room. <laughs> You know, and I can I can hear that dialogue going on in my head, and I really have been practicing pulling it back and reminding myself of how important the heat and light is and how grateful I am that there's people willing to bring the heat when I'm, quite frankly, too much of a scaredy cat to do it. I should be so grateful that there are people willing to do it. And people who bring the heat who can sometimes get frustrated or, or judgmental of people who bring light also need to remember that th how important that essential work is and that there are people with the patience to do it. Yeah. No, it's interesting, sort of the aversion. But I think culturally, people like Martin Luther King Jr., if I'm getting this right, was heat. Although he's more remembered as light, we've sort of sanitized That's the reality right. of who he was to make it, you know, Instagram quotes. But <laughs> that that's heat. Rosa Parks, heat. And... Yeah, I, I agree. It seems, again, I definitely don't have any data that to change systems, it's not enough to sort of appeal to people's intellects and minds, but that there's a place for it. I'm with you. I don't think I know how to bring heat, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But, but thank you for bringing up those specific examples historically, because they're so useful, right? Like at the time when Dr. Martin Luther King was a public figure and alive, he was viewed as radical and pushing too hard and too fast by the majority of white Americans. I, I don't want to spoil too much, but I talk a bit about Rosa Parks in my most recent book. And there's lots of surprises about her that we don't know about. Let's start with the fact that we often refer to her as elderly, and she was 42 at the time when she wouldn't get <laughs> up on the bus. <laughs> so can we all sit with that for a moment? And, she, <laughs> and there's wonderful work, work by um, historian Jean Thea Harris and others that have shown documented in a way that's easily documented. It's not even sort of a hidden history type of situation that she had been an activist her entire life. This was an intentional, predictable action on her part. She was very active in the NAACP. When she was a teenager, her family moved homes because she had to cross paths with white kids on the way to school. And when they taunted her, she wouldn't back down. And they were concerned that she was going to get hurt. So they, they literally moved to a different neighborhood where they didn't have to worry about her being taunted by these kids. And they weren't worried as much about them taunting her. They were worried about she would get in more trouble if she stood up for herself as a young black girl. So time after time, she was fearless and rebellious. And yet again, we go back to the clean narratives that we like that doesn't fit the narrative. The narrative that we like to hear is that she kind of, you know, was this this elderly, tired seamstress who wouldn't wouldn't get up and became an accidental activist. And the rest of the world was like, oh, 
my gosh, she's absolutely right. Let's fix this. And there was broad support for it. And you notice what's not in that story is that there were many attempts leading up to that that failed. There was Mm -hmm. the majority of Americans resisted what she was, she and others were fighting for. She was considered divisive. We're hearing all the same words. She was bringing heat and that she was going to have to push, she and the the massive movement she was part of, we're going to have to push hard against people's comfort and the majority where it stood then. Historically, we look back with hindsight bias and it all looks like it was just going to happen no matter what. And that somehow the story prevailed on these chivalric ideas, too, of like, you have this elderly, tired Mm -hmm. seamstress, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you would take her seat. It's interesting, too, like how it plays into that narrative of, well, of course, I I should offer this old woman a place to rest her weary legs. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Let's talk about when you write about South Africa and Mm. that reckoning. And I I don't, I only have his last name, Jansen. Yes, Jonathan, Um, Professor Jonathan Jonathan Jansen. And these Mm -hmm. three narratives as he's working through this with people about apartheid, three prevailing narratives, which I think, as you say, apply everywhere. One, nothing happened. Two, something happened, now get over it. And three, terrible things happened. Yeah. And how we yeah. split, right, collectively, when we're talking about our social identity into those three streams. Yeah. This this was so interesting. Jonathan Jansen has written a book called Knowledge in the Blood. And he's a black academic in South Africa, an educator who apartheid was finally taken down. You know, it was, University of Pretoria was described as you know, such a central force in apartheid. It was the feeder of the white civil servants who would serve the apartheid government. Their scholarship was used to legitimize apartheid. I mean, this was a really central piece of the infrastructure around apartheid. When apartheid no longer existed, or at least, you know, was no longer legally a force, he became one of the senior deans in the university as a black man in this white university working with white students who, you know, in their adolescence, late adolescence, were seeing this dramatic change in how their country thought about people like him. And he was really interested just in his lived experience as an educator to engage, see how they engaged with him and to see how they cataloged and remembered what was, how are they going to take that into the future? Like what, why were things 
the way they were and and how are we going to think about that and so his book is is kind of a not really a memoir but like a edu- educator's kind of recollection of what he saw in his students and the framework you described was how what he came up with is that there were there were three types of approaches he saw in his students that nothing happened bad things happened now get over it or terrible things happened. And when I read how he articulated that and the examples he gave, I was just blown away. I was like, this, he could be writing, you know, change the vocabulary. And it sounds like our country. It sounds so similar to how we talk about the past and the different versions and the the battles we're having about what to teach in schools, what should be in our textbooks, how to celebrate holidays, all seem to center around these three narratives. And again, I'm, it's hard to understand the psychology of, of whole groups. But who do you think is most open to the third? Terrible things happen and it's time for, for restoration, restitution, mm. acknowledgement. Like where does that flexibility come from? Is it driven by guilt and shame, which I know you explore at length in the book as well? Or is it this, I know I'm bad, this an affirmation of a different kind of identity? What do you yeah. think? That, what is that? Well, I mean, what I'm positing it is, is an ability to grapple with contradiction. So -hmm. that's the paradox mindset that Wendy Smith, Marianne Lewis, and other scholars have shown that when we're able to sit with two conflicting things in our minds, for example, that if, if we stick with the example in South Africa, it may be true that if I'm a student, that my parents and my grandparents participated in actively supported apartheid and that they were also wonderful parents and grandparents. Like those two things can be true. And being able to sit with that contradiction gives me the like emotional limberness to kind of, you know, push my way through the the emotional slog of this is awful. This is awful. And to sit with terrible things happened. I, that's the only way you can do it. Is it and and so that was the first the first thing I would say is that that paradox mindset, which also by the way has been shown to make us more creative and more resilient. Like there's lots of benefits to being able to just and it's not that complicated. It's literally just saying both of these things can be true. Like it's literally just yeah. allowing ourselves that. And then the second thing is when you referred to it just now when you talked about shame and guilt, it's the ability to kind of affirm ourself as opposed to like shame, you know, is an emotion that as we've heard many times is sort of where we like put a blanket of shame across our whole being that there's something wrong with me as a whole. And I certainly felt that, you know, at times where I've, you know, used a word that I later learned that has some, you know, racist origin or I've you know, confused two people of the same race for each other. I mean, these are horrible feelings and you feel like, oh my God, I am just like the worst. I just want to sink into the ground right now. But that of course makes me just sink into the ground and not actually come up and act and face and confront and able to say terrible things happen. So what we want to do is not have that shame that that we're soaked in, but be able to sort of affirm, back to affirmation, affirm identities we care about. In the book, I share some research about like simple ways to do that. What are the values I care most about? I care deeply about fairness. I care deeply about equality. Thinking about that, affirming that as an identity I care about, a value I care about, but it's not something where I'm like, ah, I am the worst. I am the worst. I can just move into what is the action? What is the 
What is the mm-hmm. behavior that I need as opposed to the whole identity that like I've just shredded right. with my yeah that it's shattered in that brittle shattered yeah. exactly exactly yeah. I think for many of us in America at least the fixation on nostalgia is really interesting. Like I don't necessarily have that. I thought that it was, mm-hmm. although I'm, it sounds quite human, maybe I do, but you write, research shows that nostalgic memories lead us to feel more loved and protected and even more interpersonally mm-hmm. competent. Nostalgia creates a sense of belonging and social connection. Our interest in the past is focused on this as intimate past, as almost every American deeply engages the past, and the past that engages them most deeply is that of their family. I thought that was so interesting, the way that that, that the self-protection that comes from, again, we can go to both end thinking, but most of us don't. But this idea that, like, of course, our ancestors were good, noble, well-intentioned people who did what they needed to do to survive. And I loved the examples. I had This had completely gone over my head and in the culture but when you write about the difference between Anderson Cooper's reaction to learning about his genealogy versus Ben Affleck can you tell us a little bit about that because it's such a good example yeah yeah this is the tv show on PBS called Finding Your Roots where they do this like incredible job digging into celebrities are usually their guests they're able to use everything from archival records and and genetic work and all this stuff and like really recreate someone's history beyond what they would have ever known about on their own. And that they then, the the format of the show is then they present it to the celebrity. There's like a big reveal and they they get their reactions. And, you know, it's, it's a very sort of moving and emotional, surprising show. And on different episodes, I had the opportunity to interview Hazel Gerland-Pooler, who's one of the producers or former producers on the show. And she didn't work on either of the episodes that I write about in the show, but she was just able to kind of give me a sense about how they put the show together and kind of the the ways in which they, you know, really try to balance the surprise that that is the core of the show with also the fact that these are human beings, these celebrities, and, you know, they are going to have real human reactions to these surprises and sort of have to grapple with that in, on camera. So what I focused on was two little case studies, if you will, from episodes, again, that she didn't work on, but one was Ben Affleck and the other was Anderson Cooper. The Ben Affleck one got a lot of attention because it became public through, I think it was one of those big like email leaks that happened years ago where a bunch of emails that had nothing to do with the thing, the headline sort of spilled into the public eye. And in this case, some of those emails had to do with when Ben Affleck was on the show, he was apparently told that he had an ancestor who had enslaved human beings and it wasn't something he was aware of. And it actually ran pretty counter to kind of the narrative that he had learned in his family and that the rest of his family. And he, after they were done filming, had reached out to the show's producers and and asked if they would not include that. And there was all sorts of internal commotion over what to do because generally they don't honor those requests. But in this case, they did. So we as the public never saw that part of his heritage. And I contrasted that to Anderson Cooper, who was also on the show, and he was also shown family history of a great, great, great somebody who enslaved humans and in that case actually was killed by one of the people he enslaved. And so that was aired. And in that case, Anderson Cooper, like when you watch him take in the news and react to it, he's obviously disgusted by the the behavior that's visible, but he's also like able to 
view it, maybe his training as a journalist, like almost journalistically, like sort of neutrally as if it was someone else's family and that he can just be like, that's terrible. I'm not going – that social identity we talked about earlier and that feeling of threat, you don't see that threat bubbling up in him. He's able mm. to, to just condemn it as what it is without sort of feeling the need to defend himself. You see this real contrast. And so I was trying to, you know, like in – I'm a fan of Ben Affleck. I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize. I have no idea what was going through his head. But I think most of us would react a little more like Ben Affleck than Anderson Cooper but we'd all be better off if we could react a little more like Anderson Cooper in that situation. And that's, that was the, the, the highlight, what I was trying to highlight with that contrast. Yeah. And these, the creation of these identities, it's sometimes, I loved this phrase that you came up with, belief grief. Mm-hmm. Right? Like so many, you know, when you're talking about Affleck and you're like, he had this, this revelation ran counter to what he had been told about his family. It's like great patriots who were, you know, on the right side of history, right? Like yes. more socially progressive or liberal. And sort of what happens to us when we have to let go of beliefs that might be personal or could be yeah. social, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Belief grief is real. I mean, it is really devastating when, again, it goes back to your identity, right? When a belief that is core to your identity is challenged, we really take it hard. And it takes away not just the belief, but that little chunk of the identity as well. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets, they also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. 
I'm so happy that you talked about restoration in Germany and the way that they acknowledge Holocaust all over the place, right? There are monuments mm -hmm. all over the city. But I, I had always, I had heard that and always assumed that it was like almost an immediate reaction to the Holocaust, like an immediate mea culpa, yeah. we need to make this right and acknowledge this. And obviously we have nothing like that. If anything, right. we are still dismantling Confederate statues mm -hmm. and dismantling those belief systems not very well, obviously. But I thought this, this actually gave me hope for mm -hmm. us. Me too. Can you talk about was Neiman, I think, and the yeah. the sort of the post-German, post-war German writing and how full of, you, you write, she found little evidence of reckoning and that what happened yeah. for that to actually start to happen? Because I think it, it makes me feel hopeful. Me too. And I also did not know about it until I was researching this book that I always assumed that the Holocaust ended and everyone went, oh, what were we doing? We must immediately make visible amends. In fact, it wasn't until after 1965 or so. So we're talking a couple of decades later. And what happened was ex-Nazis were being tried for, I guess, war crimes, must have been the official trial. And those trials were being televised. And the child, their children and grandchildren were seeing these trials. And that is what started to push for public, visible, permanent amends that would, you know, presumably create some sort of societal muscle memory around what happened and what we don't want to happen again. And so the idea of, of making things vivid and salient was really part of, like, their own, the way I'm sort of understanding it is like their own unlearning of the past couple of decades where things kind of just kept going as they, I mean, the Holocaust may have ended, but like the beliefs didn't really, like it, things just kept going. And then right. there was this, these trials and then there was this like, now we reckon, now we unlearn, now we, you know, make public collective commitments. And now, of course, their country, like it seems like every country in the world, seems to have their own current sort of struggle going on. But it's not for lack of these public amends. And I also came away hopeful from that, that maybe, you know, maybe it's taking us a little bit longer. But well, I guess it depends. When, you, when I say longer, I don't know what, what exactly point on the timeline I'm, I'm measuring from. But I, I think I was thinking the Civil War just now. But yes, I think there's still time. Yeah. For us to, you know, it's too late, but maybe there's still time. Yeah. But I also think that what we're experiencing in this country, at least, is these waves of revelation, right? Like, and you talk a lot about sort of the dis differences in textbooks, right? And the way that things are taught or are not taught or are the things that you've only learned recently, that I've only learned recently, like as a well-educated person, the, mm -hmm. my paucity of awareness is humiliating. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't know, like you, that Native Americans were sent to boarding school until maybe 10 years ago. And I grew up in Montana. So I think that part of it is, yes, those events seem so far away. But like, even as a someone who lived in the North, I clung to that identity as like, I'm not Southern. And then you start actually understanding slavery and you're like, oh, wow, like mm -hmm. New York profited from slavery more than any other 
state, right? Right. Rhode Island was core to the system. Yeah. So that no one is, I think a lot of people who sort of kept themselves as separate or away from this are now recently facing those, that belief grief and those feelings of like, I don't even know who I am and how could I come from this? And it feels like an assault to our brittle identities. And you're really pointing out like how much of this learning about the past, thinking about the past, honoring the past, how much of it is an emotional process. We often think of it as an intellectual process. We think of it, history as dry intellectual exercise. I mean, that's sort of the cliche of history class, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to what it really is or should be, which is a deeply emotional roller coaster. And nuance, right? I mean, going back mm-hmm. to the beginning of our conversation and the way that women are programmed to be good or to care, community, to also think of yourself as like, I'm a helper, I'm a do I do well, and then to be like, oh, and I've caused a lot of harm, and I have been yeah. unconscious in my actions, and nobody is asking for my help. Like all of these things, like it's again, it goes to that core of who we perceive ourselves to be and how we want to be affirmed. It's really difficult. Yes. It's a, there's a lot of grieving that's required. Yeah, well said. Can you? I loved this tool. Because I feel like it applies to all of life. And you were talking about it in the context of your kids, your maternal desperation when you were young and you were flying <laughs> and your plane was struck by lightning. Oh, yeah. Adventure. <laughs> but it is changing our reference point from yeah. being everything goes right to some things go wrong. Yeah. And it goes again to this, like, just try to be a goodish person, like, so that you can yes. be a better person. Don't don't claim good person. Can you, and I know it, it also requires holding paradox, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the adventure points is the I, the idea of, you know, when we we set out these wonderful plans and, of course, the you missed your connection and you you leave your bag somewhere and somebody wets their pants and all the things that happen (laughs) that how do you still push on with an attitude of this is going great and you don't want to be Pollyanna about it and be like well it does kind of stink that we don't have a change of clothes for you right now but there's no doubt that's not good but but is there a way to frame it in a way that's both reality-based and positive and hopeful. And so, you know, the, the desperation move and every parent has their own stories of these these desperation moments was, was something around adventure points of like, how many points can we get today? Every time something goes wrong or doesn't get as, go as planned or violates our expectations of what was going to happen, we're going to get a point for it. And if it's really bad, we get bonus points. And, you know, I still try to use it with my 17 and 16 year olds right now. <laughs> now I just get eye rolls as opposed to, to any sort of moment with it. But but I what I love about it, actually, can I tell you a cute story? When I submitted that chapter to my wonderful editor, Stephanie Hitchcock at Atria at Simon & Schuster, she, uh, the comment she put in the margins next to the Adventure Points explanation was, tell me your mom's a psychologist without telling me your mom's a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. But I like the idea. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please. But I like the idea. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about looking at history as a form of time travel, right? And 
thinking about sort of the travel guide, you know, I feel like I essentially have tried to write a travel guide for time travel that sets you up for the adventure points. And the idea that if you go into this trip thinking it's all going to be nostalgic and sweet and all our ancestors are going to, you know, make us proud and we're always going to be on the right side of history and et cetera, et cetera, you're going to, it's like getting struck by lightning on the plane, like, and, and wetting your pants. And, like, all the things are are going to really floor you. It's going to make it the worst trip ever. You're going to want to go home. You're never going to go again. Like, it's really going to shut down that sense of exploration and adventure and all the wonderful things that come with looking at the past and the things that are to be proud of and excited about and and, and sort of, you know, just, like, delighted by that that you discover on a trip. So adventure points in time travel, I think, are really useful, too. Like, what paradox did you find today? You know, what sort of identity threat did you stumble on? Like, let's, what belief grief did you, did, you, did you have to handle a little bit? Point, point, point for all of them. Yeah. No, and I like it because it, it's not negative and sort of like prepare for the worst, <laughs> whatever, whatever that is. I, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's not a prop, but it's yeah, not yeah. sort of this like – foreboding joy like the shit's gonna hit the fans so but it's it brings with it the sense of adaptability learning adventure resilience yes. like it feels engaged and active rather than life's gonna happen to you and it's gonna suck but more right. of a like how do we how do we get a little bit more flexible and gooey about how we respond to yeah. curveballs Yes, exactly. And how did that, you know, you use the word resilient, like I offer the reader the idea of being a gritty patriot, where I, I lean on the research from Angela Duckworth and colleagues on grit, grit, they define as passion, plus perseverance, in pursuit of a meaningful long term goal. And if we think of love of country, or patriotism, as a meaningful long-term goal, as something we sort of actively work towards as opposed to we're just entitled to it, and we have passion and perseverance in pursuit of it, then we can we can embody this gritty patriot identity, I think, with excitement. Like, this is something Americans can do hard things. I can do hard things. I can love my country with a broken heart. I can push through the paradox, I can push through the identity threats, and I can still love my country, and I can still work towards making it better. Yeah. One of the things that I love about your books is that even though you're an academic and professor and a psychologist, it's sort of you embody this idea of like showing your work. And Mm. I love being able to read through your own processing as you're grappling with these things rather than like this statement that somehow you've arrived and you've achieved this exalted state, but that you're showing us like, you know, work in progress or like I am learning and I'm trying to unpack this and evolve the way I understand it. And hopefully you understand it as well. So thank you for that because we need, I think, particularly in this sticky, treacherous, scary land models for what that looks like. Thank you for saying um, that. I actually it's funny while we've been talking I haven't I'm you you've been such a amazing supporter of this work and so you're one of the first podcasts I'm doing as we launch this book and my internal dialogue as we've been talking is feeling my own struggle and resistance with doing what I feel I do well on paper making my own learning visible. I'm struggling to do verbally because it's it's it takes practice. It's hard, right, to do that. And I'm early in the launch process, so I'm I, I've been having this internal dialogue. So it's very interesting you name that, and it encourages me to to keep trying. 
I love Dolly, and I really do mean that she shows her work and reveals of herself in a way that I think makes space for, again, this paradox that she illuminates as being essential for our thinking, this both and the rose and its thorns and other examples of how things can be multiple things at once. She asks the question, and I think many of us can feel this way, particularly when there are regressive policies happening across the country, rights that we maybe took for granted being rescinded, etc. She asks the question, are we making progress? She writes, Sometimes the answer is all of the above. When we release the need to solve an unsolvable problem, we shed a heavy, clumsy load of anxiety and discomfort. The tension of trying to resolve a paradox can be emotionally depleting, and that energy can be released for other cognitive and emotional tasks. We also see new possibilities. The world is complicated and nuanced. It takes effort to see beneath the surface. When we do, however, new possibilities emerge. People are both good and bad, and situations will shape their behavior more than we realize. The world is making progress, but it is not always linear. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.